Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Alan Noble to talk with him about his brand new book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. And if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner, I want to let you know that there's two beliefs that really drive uh, pretty much everything that we do here on the podcast. And the first is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And the second one is this, is that we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from anything and from everything, regardless of whether or not we agree with someone completely on a certain subject. And today in my conversation with Alan, I would say we're probably going to address the, the, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because a lot of what we're talking about today, what him and I are going to talk about today goes against what I think is uh, commonly held beliefs in there. And, and one of these, um, one, one of the things that we're going to get after a lot today is uh, is the need in our society to be efficient and, uh, and productive for productivity's sake. And so there's probably going to be times uh, during this conversation to where you're going to go, I'm not sure if that's true or or it's going to it's going to seem to go a, a lot against what we, you know, what maybe you thought growing up. I know that a lot of that was true for me as I was going through the book and reading through it, and I highly recommend this book. This book has uh it's one of the books that has made me think the most. Uh and and not just in a, in a really long time because there's several of the books that have done that. Um but it, it it has really challenged me in my thinking of how the world operates as well. And so I'm excited to be bringing this conversation to you. I do want to let you know that if there is someone or something that you'd love to talk about on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Alan, and then we're going to jump into the conversation. Oh, I do want to say real quick that uh, from time to time, whenever I'm interviewing a guest, I love to listen to different interviews that they've done. And so uh, feel free to scroll through the show notes if you enjoyed this conversation, if you enjoyed uh, listening from Alan, you know, pick up his book, obviously, uh, and then check out some other interviews. I usually try to cover uh, different topics or different uh, content than the interviews that I'm listening to or expound on something. So check out the show notes on that. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Alan. Alan is an associate professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He is the co-founder and editor-chief of Christ and Pop Culture and an advisor for the AND campaign. He also has his doctorate from Baylor University, and he has written for the Atlantic, Vox, BuzzFeed, the Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, and First Things. He is also the author of Disruptive Witness. Now... Without any further wait, here is my conversation with Alan Noble. Well, Alan, I am so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, you've uh, released this brand new book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. And anytime that I talk with anyone who has created a work of art or a book or anything, I love hearing the story behind what led someone uh, to pursue uh, the subject that they're interested in. And so I would love to hear um, what got you interested in this and what led you to want to write about it. Man, yeah. So... I'm going to try to give a shortened version because it it it's a lot. It's a, I mean, when you think about, so I spent about three years um, thinking through the ideas, researching, drafting, revising. That's a lot of a lot of time, and so there are several different sort of pivotal things that, that played a role in this. One of them was uh, hearing that phrase in my own head, uh, and then also hearing it repeated by others. That phrase, "I just need to get through the day," which is actually how I feel today. I just need to get through the day. Um, it's, a, it's a remarkable phrase because what it, especially when it's repeated, right? When every day we find ourselves saying, I just need to, I just need to. Um, because it, what, it, what it suggests is that, that our day-to-day lives are dysfunctional. 
that things aren't working properly. And sort of our highest aspiration is to just get through it, right? Life, time is a thing to be suffered through, not a thing to be cherished and enjoyed. Well, that's clearly a sign of deep societal dysfunction. And so hearing hearing these thoughts echo in my own head, you know, I come home from work and my kids come home from school and they're insane and I've got to help them with homework and there's so much that has to be done. And I just hear myself thinking, you know, I just need to get through the day. That's all I've got to do. Um, so that gave me this kind of clue that that, that it could be that, that the, our basic structures of society are are inhuman, that the way we've set things up is not conducive to what it means to be a human being designed, uh, uh, you know, designed in the image of God, um, created in the image of God. And so that was one, that was one sort of piece to this. Uh, the other piece was thinking through the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which begins with this question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer it gives is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And as I was hearing a lot of Christians, a lot of fellow evangelicals debating a lot of controversial hot button topics that, that often uh, plague evangelicals or conservative Christians or whatever you want to call them, it seemed to me that a lot of the debates centered around how we understood uh, our belonging. Do we fundamentally belong to ourselves or do we fundamentally belong to an other? And if an other, who is that other and what do those obligations entail? Um, and so at some point, I put the two together. Uh, it seemed to me that uh, a lot of the issues that were plaguing our society stemmed from this idea of belonging. But then it also seemed that that the daily structures, the basic structures of our society were dysfunctional. Um, and I, at a certain point, I thought, but what if it's the same? What if it's actually because we think that we belong to ourselves that we create systems and practices that are fundamentally inhuman. Because if we don't belong to ourselves, then we're living a lie. And that sounds like a kind of hell. And that's the kind of life where I would want to say to myself, I just need to get through the day. Yeah. Uh, I, and I think you're right. Everyone has said that from time to time. Um, but even just the, the phraseology of what you use of, it, it, we live in an inhuman world, a way that doesn't uh, correspond with our humanity, that can be pretty jarring. So would you mind teasing out kind of what the, the ways of uh, inhumanity are maybe play themselves out? Sure, yeah. So uh, I, I always get asked this question, and for some reason I always draw a blank because it's a very, it's a very, it's a very good question. Uh, so the, the 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 center of what I'm arguing has to do with that idea of 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 our anthropology. So my theory is that all societies are uh, structured. Our laws, our practices, our values are based on some idea of what it means to be human. Because what society does is it helps you to be fully human. That's the the ideal. But if when designing our laws and our practices and our values, if we have a false understanding of what's human. Now, what's going to happen is we're going to put, uh, it's going to feel like we're in an inhuman environment because it's not what we're made for. So now that I've described that to stall for time, uh, I, you know, to, you know, so to give an example, so uh, uh, I argue that if, if we fundamentally, if we're told that we belong to ourselves, we are our own and we belong to ourselves, what that practically means is that our lives are always a project. Your life is a project. My life is a project. It's a project that literally everything in our world depends on. The, the meaning of our life, the purpose of our life, the value, the significance of our life, all of those things are wrapped up in the project of my personal life. Now, um, how can I figure out what this project is? Well, actually, that's entirely up to me. I'm the only one who can determine the limits, the shape, and the goals of this project. Oh, uh, I'm also the only one who can work on the project. So I'm like the architect and I'm like the construction worker. Uh, and I'm the only one who can determine when the project is finished and when, it, when it's sufficient, when it's good enough, when it's beautiful enough. Um, all of those things, I think, put inhuman pressures upon us for, for, for a number of reasons. Um, one example of this is the highly competitive nature of our world. Well, if each of us have to make something miraculous and exciting and transcendent out of this project of our lives, and everybody's doing it, then we're all going to end up competing. We're all going to end up competing for the same attention, the same uh, 
airspace, the same eyeballs, the, the same praise, the same accolades, the same wealth, all of these things, right? Because we're all trying to make something interesting out of ourselves, which is our job if we belong to ourselves. Um, and that runs us ragged. And I, and I feel like the evidence of this is just is just everywhere. So for example, a couple of years ago, um, a, uh, a woman in um, BuzzFeed, uh, at BuzzFeed, published an article, I think her name is Anne Helen Peterson, uh, called The Burnout Generation, talking about millennials and, and the fact that so many, and this was pre-COVID actually, uh, so many of them, uh, millennials feel burnt out. Um, they feel overwhelmed. And one of the ways they feel overwhelmed is all the different choices they have to make. Every choice is significant. Every choice matters. Every choice is before them. And they get what's called choice paralysis. They feel like there's no possible way for them to keep what she calls self-optimizing. We've got to self-optimize, become the best version of ourselves. And that's an inhuman burden. It's an inhuman burden because I argue we are not our own. We're not made to create projects out of our lives. And when we do that, we inevitably get burned out. That, that's, that's the natural result. So, so okay, one more example. So yeah. when I see in Oklahoma, we just recently passed a, a legalization of marijuana, medical marijuana law, which whatever you want to think about that is, is fine. Well, it's not fine, but it's not what I want to talk about. Um, but they, they put up these signs on the I-40. Um, and these signs, to me, they essentially said, we give up. Because the signs would say something like, uh, are, are you down? Or are, are you not living your best life? And then it's, you know, it's essentially like, try weed. And I thought, man, if, if we get to a place in a society where we're just, we're just we're, we just know. Like, we're, just, we're not even hiding it anymore. Life is unbearable. This doesn't work you might as well get high. Clearly, that's a sign that we're living in an environment that is not made for humans because we have to dope ourselves to get through the day. That's a problem. And what I want to say is, you know, if I have to make something significant out of my life and literally everything in my existence depends on it, yeah, I probably do want to get high because that sounds unbearable. Yeah. And something, it just makes me think of something that you come back to over and over again throughout the book is the responsibilities of self-belonging and all of the things that that come with the pressure of feeling like you have to belong to yourself. Can you tease that those out a little bit or what an example might be of that? Yeah. So I break these down into five categories. They overlap. So it's kind of an artificial breakdown, but I think it's useful for the way we, we talk about it. So the first responsibility I say is a justification. So we have a, a personal responsibility if we belong to ourselves to have a justified life. And by that, I mean a life that has purpose, that has significance, a life that is worthy of the miracle of existence, of, of, of life. Um, so we have to find some way of justification. We can't be justified by anyone else. If we belong to ourselves, no one else can come along and say, well, Alan, your life is, is, is uh, significant and purposeful and meaningful because I say it is. That's not how it works. I'm the only one who can determine that because I belong to myself. So that means it's my freedom, I have the freedom to determine if my life is significant. I also have the responsibility to make it significant. Uh, second, I think I talk about identity. I think the second one is identity. This is one we're very familiar with, especially with things like social media. But there's this overwhelming sense in which we all have the responsibility to be our own uh, publicity agent. Everybody has to craft a brand, craft an identity, craft a, a style of dress, of speaking, of working, ethics, um, a public persona, persona and um, that's how you determine who you are. If somebody was to ask, who is Alan? I have to be able to give some sort of an explanation. I can't do what people would have done historically, which is say, well, uh, I, I am Alan, the son of Craig and Brenda, or I'm Alan. I come from a city called Lancaster in Southern California, or I am Alan. I go to this church, right? Those sorts of things no longer ground us. We have to create our identity. Um, then there is uh, meaning. And by that, what I mean is, if we belong to ourselves, then the meaning, the interpretation that we get in the world has to come from us. It can't be intrinsic. So uh, we impose meaning upon the world instead of discovering meaning in the world. So if I have a good experience, I get to be the one who interprets what that experience means, whether that's sex or a birthday party or an achievement or a work of art or a film. I'm the one who imposes meaning. Uh, 
and just very quickly, one of the problems with that is that when you're the one who imposes meaning, uh, meaning never works that way, at least in my experience and in my opinion, uh, meaning always feels like something that exists uh, transcendently. So for example, the love I have for my wife and for my children, that doesn't feel like something that I'm just making up in my head. It it, it feels like it, it reflects, it resonates with some deep, eternal, transcendent truth. As a Christian, I want to say, yeah, it does, because I'm not on my own, and I belong to God. And that love I have for my family echoes the love God has for me and for them. All right, so uh, that's meaning. And then I also talk about values. So what are our morals, our ethics? And then finally, belonging, right? So to, to, to whom do we belong, right? So do I belong to my wife and my children? Uh, well, if I belong to myself fundamentally, then any other kind of belonging I have, any other commitments, they're always um, temporary. They're just they're just contingent. They're what I choose to do, right? And this is also, you know, by the way, how we very often in the contemporary world treat friendships and churches and marriages and parenting. It's something I do until somebody else or something else better comes along, and then I'm going to jump ship. Uh, another term, or a term that uh, I was introduced to uh, while reading your book was this of uh, expressive individualism, which I really hadn't heard of um, before before picking up your book. Would you mind explaining kind of what that is and how that um, it plays a part into this conversation as well? Yes. So Robert Bella, a sociologist and uh, some of his uh, uh, co-authors uh, in a book, Habits of the Heart, come up with this this idea, uh, expressive individualism, Charles Taylor, another uh, thinker, um, sort of expands upon it. Um, it's the idea that that for contemporary people to have an identity is to an express an identity. So um, uh, each of us, instead of having a, a discrete um, identity of like who, who we are, whether that's grounded in a place or a tradition or a family line or something like this, Instead, our identities are free-floating. They're things that we create. But um, the key to this is that we can't just discover our identity, right? Uh, we can't just look inside ourselves and find this is the true Alan. Uh, also, I can't just look out into the internet and discover the Alan I want to be and create that Alan. What's necessary is I have to express it as well. And so the idea of expressive individualism is um, to have an identity, to be a full person in the contemporary world. It's not enough to know who you are. You have to be continually expressing, continually emoting, continually showing the world who you are because it's through expression that you actually have an identity. Maybe the best way to understand this is to think about the way we use social media. I would say that social media uh, has been created as a tool for expressive individualism. Contemporary people had this need, or this felt need, I should say. They felt like they needed everyone to know who they were and what they believe and what they like and what their thoughts are. And so social media platforms provided the tools so that you can endlessly express your yourself, your identity. Uh, one of the problems with this is that you can't stop expressing. Like, if your identity is uh, only solid insofar as other people bear witness to it and your expressions of it, that means you have to constantly be expressing yourself, which is, of course, what social media does to us, right? It is fundamentally addictive because you need more and more ways to tell the world about you. Yeah, and I think the, the other thing that was that was really intriguing to me as a part of that idea is that it's not just that we need to express, but we need the we need the affirmation, too, of other people. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. So here's yeah, that's the catch with that's the catch with identity. So identity as an idea always inherently involves another person, another being. Right. So to have, I mean, the whole idea of identifying means that there's more than one. Right. So there's got to be somebody outside of me who can bear witness, who can say, "Oh, that's Alan. I see his face." I have a name for him. He has a consciousness that's not the same as mine. That's Alan and I'm me, right? Okay. Well, uh, that means when, when we're practicing expressive individualism, whether we know that name or not, um, on the one hand, very often what we're saying is, I am creating, I am doing me. I'm speaking my truth. I'm pursuing the best version of myself. I'm the one who defines all these things. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm going to you know, uh, you know, chart my own path. 
But on the other hand, we absolutely need affirmation, like, because that's what identity is all about. So we need people to affirm us and say, your identity is good. I affirm your identity. I'm glad you're doing this. This is your authentic you, and so on and so forth. So there's this deep paradox that leaves us conflicted. On the one hand, we want to say, I am my own person. I don't need anyone else's uh, affirmation. On the other hand, we're radically dependent on it for our identity. And so we end up being sort of schizophrenic in that sense, you know? Yeah. Uh, one of one of the things that, and it's, uh, I don't think it's just your book. I feel like this is just stuff that I've been thinking about a lot recently on my own journey is uh, one of the verses that has come to mind is in Matthew 11 to where Jesus talks about, you know, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I would just love um, your thoughts kind of like around that and how that applies to this conversation as well. Mm. Man, yeah. So I think I uh, did I talk about it in this book? Do you remember? I don't think so. I don't remember okay. Matthew eleven specifically. Okay, so I, I wrote a short book over the summer called "On Getting Out of Bed," and I think I wrote about it there. Or if I didn't, I thought about it. So I can't. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote something somewhere yeah. where I talked about this, so I'm trying to remember it because I do. I find that verse so fascinating because I think. Okay, God, Jesus, that sounds wonderful. But when I experience uh, dying to self, which is what you call me to, when I experience dying to self day to day, it kind of sucks. Like it doesn't feel light. Like you tell me that my yoke is light, my burden is easy, but I often don't experience it that way. So how do my how do I make how do I make sense out of that? Um, and so there's a couple of things that I think we can, a couple of ways where I think we can understand it that are very helpful. In writing this book, um, speaking of burdens and yokes, one way to think about what I'm arguing is that there, these responsibilities of self-belonging have been placed on our shoulders by society. The whole society, our environment has told us that we belong to ourselves and it's up to us to do everything to make our lives significant and meaningful, et cetera, et cetera. And that's an impossible burden that's crushing us, sitting on our chests, suffocating us, okay? So that's a burden. And in this book, what I want to do is help take that burden off of you, actually help you see that that burden is not real. It's a lie. You don't have that burden. It's not your responsibility to create your existence, to create your identity, to create your meaning and justification, all these sorts of things. And so on the one hand in this book, I'm trying to show you, uh, actually, the burden is light. When you recognize that you are created by loving God and he created you in an act of, act of love and grace, and that that same God not only created you, but he also sustains you moment by moment in an act of love and grace. And even more so, uh, he has forgiven you of your sins when you repent by dying on the cross for you. When you understand those things, then that burden that you've been trying to carry gets lifted and you realize that's, that's nonsense. So that, that's one way of understanding Matthew 11, I would say, is that, that the, the true understanding of what our burdens are, it's, it's light, it's easy, but it's still a yoke. It's, it really is still a yoke. It is still a burden. It might, it's lighter. It's lighter than the burden that society has placed on you, which is impossible to bear, impossible to deal with, but it's still a burden and it's still hard. The difference is God gives you the strength to carry this burden. And it's the burden that you were designed to carry. So for example, um, you know, when, when Jesus talks to the disciples about uh, marriage and divorce, I love what the disciples say. Uh, you know, what he says, you know, basically you can't get divorced unless, you know, Moses gave you guys a cop out, but really you shouldn't be, you know, pursue that. And they're just like, well, I guess nobody should get married then. I just, I, I love the, the, <laughs> the disciples saying that because they're, they're basically admitting that, you know, being committed to one person for life is really hard. It's a whole lot easier if you can say, well, uh, we're married until further notice, right? Until it gets a little bit tough. So um, marriage is a kind of burden. You're, you make a vow. That is a commitment that you live with. Um, that's not easy, but it is how God designed marriage to be. And therefore, it is good. And God will give you the strength to do, the, to do that. But there's still going to be times where it's really hard where you're going to be tempted by other people 
or or you're going to be burdened with your spouse's suffering or their problems or their sins or whatever. It's not it's not easy. So that's that's how I understand these verses. We're still carrying a yoke, but it's Jesus's yoke. It's the the burden of righteousness that He puts on us. But it, but but fundamentally, that's a righteousness that He has already earned for us with His His obedience and His death on the cross. And so. That's the distinction. It's the distinction between an impossible burden to bear and one that we are designed for. Yeah. Would you mind teasing out a little bit more of what the the impossible burden is, the burdens that we're not meant to carry? Because, you know, I, I feel like you, and you do such a good job of painting it in, in the book. Um, it's a little bit like if you're, if you're the fish and you're swimming in the water, you don't recognize sometimes that you are carrying an impossible burden with it. Mm. Um, and so I would just love your thoughts or even teasing out what are some signs of like, yeah, you are, you are trying to live or work under an impossible burden. Yeah. So, okay. So um, one sign is that you develop more and more coping mechanisms uh, because you run up against um, demands that are impossible to deal with and the stress and anxiety and frustration that you, and feelings of inadequacy that, that you have um have to be dealt with in some way. And so and rather than acknowledge that the burden is unreasonable, you self-medicate, whether it's watching, you know, television for hours, you know, binge watching, or whether it's drugs or pornography or food, or at some time exercise can be done, it can be used in this way. But whenever you feel like life is unbearable, like we said at the beginning of this show, um, you know, that idea, I just need to get through the day. Life is unbearable. This basic structure doesn't work. I can't meet the demands that people are putting on me. So I just need to cope. I just need to have some ice cream. I just need to smoke. I just need to drink. I just need to look at porn, you know, whatever it is, because life feels unbearable. For, for me, now this might sound petty, but, but to me, it's the, the, but it's not. It's the accumulation of million little indignities where you are being treated in an inhuman way that accumulate to make you feel that life is sort of impossible. Uh, so for example, I, I think a lot about all the ways I am being told that I, if I'm a good person, must improve, that I must be, as I've said earlier, the best version of myself. So right now I'm a father, I'm a professor, I'm a husband. Um, I, I wanna work on being an elder at my church, my son. Uh, there are, a million different sources every day who are telling me uh, that A, I'm doing all of those things badly. B, there's a better method for doing these things. And C, if I don't practice that best method, then I'm in sin in some way, right? Like I'm I'm, I'm not living, I'm being immoral. So there is a best best method for for, uh, 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 eating, right? Lots of best, best methods for that. Everybody's got a diet that they want to tell you. Uh, and there's one for exercise. Everybody's saying, well, you've got to exercise this certain way. And if you don't exercise this certain way, your body's going to fall apart and you, and you should feel bad if you're not exercising. Um, there's people telling me how to take care of my mental health, right? So actually, Alan, you've got to do these steps of self-care. And if you don't take these steps of self-care, your life is going to fall apart. And so you should feel bad if you don't have time to do this. Um, there are political things going on at the, the city, the state, the national level that really matter, that are important, that everyone is telling me I need to pay attention to and be up to date on. And I can barely keep on top of my workload and taking care of my children, right? Um, I'm constantly being reminded by society that I should be reading to my kids more. And and I feel like, honestly, when I come home, I, I, sometimes I barely have time to I just want to crash and eat food, you know, eat dinner and go to bed. Um, there are just so many people telling me there's a best method, a best practice, a best way to do X, whatever it is I'm doing. And most of them I'm failing to do. And uh, it's it's that burden, again, that, uh, Peterson calls it, uh, and Helen Peterson calls it, you know, this... Um, self-optimization. You've got to be optimizing whatever you're doing, whatever system you have, the way you're doing laundry. Oh, actually, there's a there's a better way to do laundry that's more efficient, that uh, is better, uh, uses less water, and uses you know chemicals that are better for the environment. And if you don't do this, you should feel bad, right? Um, 
that's the kind of world that we live in. It's a constant nagging. You're not good enough. You're not doing enough. You're a failure. Give up. Yeah. One of, one of the things uh, that I think is really easy whenever, you, if, you, if you're listening to this conversation and you are a follower of Jesus, I think it's really easy for us to go, I'm good. You know, I, mm. I belong to God and everything. You know, I've, you know, I've uh, decided to follow Jesus and everything. Uh, but what are some ways that you've seen, because we're not immune to this either, even if we are, you know, followers of Jesus, what are some ways in which you've seen that it is um, tempting for Christians to fall into the belonging to ourselves type of stuff? Yeah. And that's, that is, thank you for bringing that up because that is one of the goals of this book is to, to, to point out that this is not one of those issues of these sort of culture war issues where it's like, well, if you're a Christian, you're good. It's the, I'm talking about those people over those weirdos over there. They're the real <laughs> problems, but we got things under control. And I just want to say like, if, if you're, if you read my book and you have that response, then you're not being honest with yourself. Like you, you're not, you're, you're, you're lying to yourself because there's something in this that should convict you. Uh, there's things that convict me. So um, this is for all of us. So, I mean, even in the church, so I, I deal with a lot of Christian college students because I, I am a professor at a, at a Christian school. And so uh, I will regularly, uh, I would say most of my students, the vast majority of my students are very few exceptions I can think of. Um, especially when they hit the senior year, they have an existential crisis. And they have an existential crisis because they have been led, sometimes by parents, sometimes by churches, sometimes by just society at large, sometimes all of the above, to think that they have to have, again, this great project of a life. And so that means their first step after college is critical. If they don't choose the right career, if they don't marry the right person, the rest of their life will be a failure. And they have a million different choices of careers, a million different places they can live, a million different identities they can have. And if they don't pick the right one, it's, it's, it's again, it's life or death. Um, and so that they freeze up. They feel like I can't make any choice because whatever I do, I could, I could you know, make a mistake and it would be just too tragic. Um, Christians shouldn't feel that way, but we do because we're taught those things in our churches. We're taught those things in our schools. Um, you know, and so they still feel that pressure. I think it's possible to, um, to be a, at least on the outside, a good evangelical, right. And to go to church. Uh, but, but fundamentally what you've done is that you've decided that your, uh, identity is as a, an evangelical, and that's what gives you purpose. And that's what gives you meaning. And that's different. That's distinct from recognizing that uh, there is a God who loves you, who died for your sins and uh, who you serve. Um, it, it's possible to go through the motions to make Christianity just another lifestyle option. And if that's the case, then what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to be really good at ministry. You're going to want to be really good at schmoozing at church. You're going to want to be really well-known and accepted as a Christian. Um, and I, I, yeah, I've seen that happen in, in the church and, and fundamentally those people are still, and they can, they can get burnt out. What can happen is they feel like I've got to be the best, right? Like I've got to be the best at ministry. So they, you know, they spend all their time doing ministry and they have no time for their kids and it's tragic or, or they spend all their time in ministry and they just actually, you know, just burn themselves out completely. So there's ways of doing that. There's also ways of where you can be a Christian, uh, you know, at least claim Christianity, but, but fundamentally you justify yourself through, you see your life as, as justified and meaningful and you find your identity in your work. So your career, your notoriety, your fame and what you do, um, that's what fundamentally upholds you. So you really, you see yourself as upholding yourself, right? You're the one who's creating a life. You're the one who's making this project. You're responsible for doing something exciting with your life. And it just so happens that you've decided to put Christianity as a part of that mix. That's kind of what your style is going to be. Um, so yeah, I think it's rampant. I think it's everywhere. Yeah. It, it's, it sounds like the cultural, like cultural Christianity and everything. Like I'll use it I'll use it for myself. Um, but as soon as, just what you're saying, as soon as it stops benefiting me, I will stop. Right. That's the key. <laughs> which, which is 
uh, which is, it's, it's a little bit funny because it's like the essence of following Jesus. I mean, just what you were saying is denying yourself at some point. It does cost us something. Yes. Right. That's the hard part. Yeah. It's not, it's not a great sales pitch. Uh, die to yourself. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Sign yeah. me up. Um, but it actually is when you understand what it means. Oh yeah. Yep. And, and I do, uh, I do want to turn the corner a little bit and, you know, not just get into like the, the, the harshness of the reality of which we live in. Uh, but I do want to ask one other question kind of associated to that. Um, you know, we, we've talked about uh, Christians as individuals. I would love your thoughts on how do you see this playing out in churches more um, like systemically, like not necessarily from an individual place, but what, um, how, how, I don't know. Am I, am, am I making sense with that question of, uh, of how, churches can be tempted to fall into the, um, the belonging to ourselves part as yeah, well. Absolutely. So any church that whose main appeal or main, yeah, appeals to the public is uh, come here so that it can better equip you and your family, right? So like you, you, the reason you come to our church is that we provide a service so that you can be the best version of yourself or your kids can be the best version of themselves or you can be the best parent you can be. Right, it's very common. Um, you know, is it true that going to church and being faithful in church will bear fruit in your life? Absolutely. But hey, guess what? The fruit, the spiritual fruit of a, in a Christian's life, often turns out to look like persecution. Often turns out to look like discipline and bearing with suffering and 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 sacrificing for other people, which are really good things, but they're not what. <laughs> Again, it's that dying to self sales pitch. That's the truth. Um, and so I think when churches do that, I think there's 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 cause for alarm there. I think when, and I talk about this, you know, quite a bit in my first book, but you know, when we have church services that really function as experiences uh, for the individual, you come and you experience something communally, but really you just experience it together alone or alone together. Um, that's belonging to yourself, right? It's just between you and God, and there's no sense of obligation to your to your neighbor or to your community or to creation. Yeah. And that's that's flawed. So, yeah, I think it happens in in lots of ways. I think very, very, very often, especially in middle class, middle upper class, and higher uh, evangelical families or Christian families, what what can happen is that there's a major pressure for kids to be successful and to be high achievers. And we can even wrap this in spiritual language, talking about being excellent for God and showing excellence in all that we do, which are we can can be good things. But when it really just sounds like the same message that the world is giving us, which is that you have a responsibility to be the best version of yourself all times, work harder, you're not doing enough, the world is hyper-competitive, you need to fight harder. Um, the distinction just blurs. There, there is no fundamental distinction. And what you can come away with, or young people can come away with thinking is that, you know, the church thinks that I need to make a great project out of my life too. It's just that the church thinks I should do this by being a super missionary or a super apostle or whatever. Whereas the world thinks, you know, I need to be a super CEO. So yeah, I think there are lots of ways that this happens institutionally. Yeah. Um, uh, as I mentioned, I do want to turn the corner back. Uh, just as I was looking through my notes, there's one other thing. This is this is probably the quote that hit me maybe the hardest, uh, or one one of the quotes that hit me the hardest in there is uh, you write in the book, self knowledge is a byproduct of knowing God. It is not the goal. The goal is to become God and become like Him. And I think the thing that hit me in the hardest of like is that I love like I love things like the Enneagram. I love personality tests and learning about myself. Um, and and it just hit me of like man, why am I really doing this? And, mm. uh, and I would just love your, your thoughts, just one on that statement. And what is a, a better approach or a better motivation through, through the journey of self-awareness, which I feel like has become a lot more prominent? Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, Calvin, I think, in, in the beginning of the Institutes gives really good uh, example for how to think through this because he does say that um, to understand God, to know God, you have to know yourself. Um, and I, I think he's he's absolutely right. 
I don't think he means that you have to know yourself completely, Stone. In the contemporary world, when we talk about knowing ourselves, we we want to we want to say, well, I need to, you know, years of therapy and sort of you know uh, personality tests and these sorts of things to discover my true self that I'm hiding from myself and the, to discover the unconscious. Where where Calvin has is is more thinking about um, our our hearts, right? Um, um, the need we have in our hearts for a savior, uh, recognizing our sin nature, right? Because we like to tell ourselves that we're better than we really are. And when we're honest with ourselves about the kinds of thoughts that we have, the kinds of desires that we have that we won't publicly talk about, um, we can see, wow, I I really do need a redeemer. Uh, my, I Even if I do many of these right things very publicly and people think I'm a good person, in my heart, I know that I sometimes I want to do those things that these terrible people do. Right. So, um, so I think Calvin gives us a good, a, a good model. It is important to know yourself. And I think that there can be uses to things like the Enneagram, like, I, you know, I like to call it the bananagrams. Um, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, um, I think, you know, I think if we, if you just use it pragmatically and say, well, if this is a, you know, a way for me to, to see kind of habits that I have, um, but I do think if you take society as a whole and you take the fascination with personality and identity tests as a whole, what it suggests is a people who are very insecure in their identities and want to feel grounded, want to know who they are. And our default is to look at things that are measurable. So if we can take a test and, and have a, an official result, that feels the most secure. And that's what personality tests give us. So can they be used in, in a helpful way? Absolutely, yeah. Um, but the I would say the broad use of it reflects um, deep identity insecurity. Yeah. So let's let's talk about what does it look like to to live as if we aren't our own. Yeah. Um, this is the fun part of the, uh, the book because I think the the implications are literally endless and i don't and and i'm i'm hoping that people read this book and start having conversations especially in local churches to figure out what those implications are um so one of them that i've been thinking about a lot because i deal with college students and and uh there's a lot of conversation about careers is um is thinking about what that what belonging to god means for our careers so for example, for the most part, I think um, young people or people of all ages, I suppose, uh, ask sort of three major questions when it comes to vocation. So they'll, they'll ask, um, what do I love doing? What can I get paid to do? And what am I good at, right? And so the idea is you, you find something that well, all three of those things align. And then, you know, what's that ridiculous saying? Like if, if you, you know, pick the right job, you know, if you love what you do, then, you know, you won't work a day of your yeah. life or something, some nonsense like that, right? Um, which, okay, sure. If you've done that, then good for you. Uh, I, I doubt it, but okay. Um, and so if, but if we belong to God, that means that we also have a similar, but not the same belonging, uh, what I call an analogous belonging to uh, our neighbors, our community, to creation, to our family, to the church. So we actually have to ask a fourth question, which is, what uh, what does what can I do for my community? What does my community need? So, for example, there are a lot of jobs, there are a lot of occupations, companies, careers that we have in the American West that don't actually help anyone, right? Like <laughs> they're they're bad for people's bodies, they're bad for people's minds, they're bad for creation. Um, they don't help anyone. Um, but we do them and they pay their bills. And it's it's good to support your family. It's good to pay your bills. But uh, if we belong to God, then we actually don't get to just say, well, this pays my bills. Therefore, it's, it's, a, it's a morally good thing to do. We actually have to ask, like, is this good for our communities? Is this good for other people? And there might be some entire careers where we have to say, gosh, I don't know that as a Christian, I can participate in these. Now, there are some that we already do, right? But my my feeling is that 
the ones that Christians want to cross off tend to be super obvious, right? So most Christians or most evangelicals at least would say like, okay, you can't participate in the porn industry. Like that, it'd be sinful. You can't participate in the, you know, in dealing drugs or something, right? Uh, okay, great. You can't be a mercenary or a hitman. Oh, okay. Congratulations. Great. That's, that's, that's wonderful. But um, what if there are other industries? Like what if, what if it's not loving to our communities to participate in the gambling industry? Uh, what if uh, advertising, um, or at least some companies that do advertising, um, you really can't uh, participate in as a Christian without failing to love your neighbor? All right. Are we ready for that kind of conversation? So I, I think there, the ramifications are, there are a lot and they're going to be hard, uh, but they are, they're good. They're actually a comfort. Yeah. Um. And, you know, towards, towards the end of the book, you, you start framing it in this context of, um, you know, usually there's two, uh, there's two uh, usual responses that we tend to have to this. And, you know, you talk about affirmation and resignation. Um, and, but one of, one of the things that, uh, that I absolutely love, and I want to read this quote from her, is, you know, you, you present kind of a third way uh, for it of just kind of what you were talking about. And, you know, you say, uh, trying and waiting without hope require courage and faithfulness. That they require more courage than resignation is not surprising, but they also require more courage than affirming or waiting on hope. It is not difficult to work courageously when you believe that your actions will bring the tide and bring about change. It is another thing altogether to act courageously without expectation that you will change the world. And I would just love your thoughts on that because it goes it goes so against just what you just what I, we've been talking about this entire time, uh, the inhumanity of you know you can you can change your world and all, all of that. Yeah, so I mean, I think um, it is good when we can make changes. It's you know it's great when when we have the agency and the wisdom to make changes that are loving to our neighbor, that that honor God, that glorify God, that are better for creation, all those things. I think that's great. Um, but there are a lot of problems in our society, which I try to describe through the first half of the book, that are just deeply entrenched. And they're so deeply entrenched and so historically entrenched that uh, I, I can't honestly uh, argue that there is a, a, a plan to to fix everything. And um, sometimes that can lead to uh, a spirit of sort of resignation where you just say, as, as you describe, you know, it, it, it's helpless. Like, the, you know, we're not going to change things. Everyone is still going to treat me in an inhuman way. Everyone is going to still treat me as if I am my own and I have to create this great project of a life. So why even try? I might as well go along with it. And as, as a Christian, I don't, I don't have that luxury. Like I can't be hopeless. I don't get to do that. I don't get to do that. Um, but there is another thing that I think, uh, at least, you know, yeah, that I think evangelicals are more likely to tend towards, and that is a sort of activist approach where they think, okay, the world or society is a mess, it's ungodly, it's inhuman, and so here's the specific plan to fix it. Now, I'm not saying that that it's wrong to advocate for justice. No, actually, you need to advocate for justice. You need to do that. We have that responsibility. But what I am saying is, you know, Eliot has that great quote, and it's from Four Quartets, where he says, uh, you know, that that we must wait without hope. Uh, and by that, what I think he means is that uh, very often when uh, we hope, we have a very specific idea of hope in mind. So we think something like, once this person gets elected, then the problem will go away. Once this law is overturned, then things will get better. Once, you know, these, you know, this institution is properly funded or whatever, then, you know, all these problems will go away. And um, that's not realistic. It's not realistic for a number of reasons. One, whatever your plan to save America or the West or whatever your city is, uh, it, it, it's probably far too simplistic. Two, God's the one redeeming the world, not not you. And so it is very, I mean, it just seems to me very likely that we'll find ourselves um, in, in, the, in the place of someone like Jonah who thinks, okay, Nineveh, this evil, wicked place, 
uh, God's telling me that I should go to them and ask, tell them to repent, but the really just thing would be for God to wipe them out. So I, I really don't want to do this. God, you're wrong. You're wrong, God. You're wrong. They should not, because if I go tell them, they might repent, and that's that's not the real outcome. The real way to save this world is for uh, Nineveh to be demolished. So wipe them out, God. And God's like, no, actually, how about this? I'm going to save an entire city. How about that? The entire city repents, boom, from the king to the lowest person. How does that make any sense? Well, because he's God, he can do that. But I can't, I can't. And so that puts me in a very difficult position, but it's the position I think that God has called us to, which is we don't have the privilege of hopelessness where we get to sit back and say, oh, you know, like the, uh, the, this is fine dog. Well, the house is burning down, whatever. Um, this is the world that we live in. Um, LOL, right? Yeah. We don't get to do that, but we also don't get to have this attitude like, okay, I know exactly what we need to do to save America. And when we do have that kind of mindset, what happens is very quickly, we, we start justifying sin. We start saying, well, I have the plan. And if I have to lie a little bit to make sure it happens, it's for the greater good. And I, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've seen that a lot in the last few years um, and longer. Or, or we'll start feeling like, man, I have the exact plan. I know what I'm hoping for. This is how I'm going to save the world or, or our culture or society. And Christians who don't get on board with me, they're not really brothers or sisters in Christ. They're enemies because they're holding us back from accomplishing the, you know, from the salvation of our city. Um, so we don't get that to do that either. Instead, we have to be faithful where we are. We have to pursue justice, even when logically we sit back and we think, this law is not going to be passed. We're still going to have this problem. Doesn't matter. You have to do this. This is what we're called to towards. Yeah. Uh, there's two other things I want to ask you about. Uh, the first is this. For the person who is listening and they're like, okay, this is great. Like, I'm, I, I agree completely. Um, but I have some people in my life who operate from the other mindset, the self-belonging mindset. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, it's a boss, it's a coworker, it's family, anything like that. Um, and they're like, how do you, how do you engage with this person? What would you say to them? Yeah. I mean, what do you mean by engaged? Like, uh, do you want to mean like challenge them um, or no, not, not necessarily challenge because you know, you, you can't change their mind. And, right. Um, but how do you, uh, how do you still maintain relationship with someone who mm. operates out of that mindset in a healthy way? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to say that this is the situation that we are all going to be in. If you read my book and you take these ideas seriously, which are not my ideas, fundamentally, they're, they're biblical ideas, or at least the best parts of them are biblical ideas. Um, that, that is going to be our reality. So I'll give you an example. Uh, when my wife was staying at home, she wasn't working. Whenever she would, I, I give this example in the book, whenever she would meet uh, uh, other adults, they would ask her, well, what do you do? And she would say, you know, I stay at home with the kids. And there was always, even people who, who, who were conservative and liked the idea of a stay-at-home mom would be like, oh, great. So what does your husband do? And there was a sense that um, my wife's value and interest as a human being was, was tied to whether or not she had a career. Now, uh, my wife knows that that's not true. That's a, that's a lie, right? Um, but coming to that conclusion for her to, to recognize, no, my worth is in Christ. It's not in my career. The people are still going to be treating her that way, right? Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. This is what we're taught to do. We, we think about our lives as in, in terms of career trajectories or whatever, so, uh, or vocational trajectories. So, all of us to some, to one extent or another are going to, this is going to be how we live. Our employers are still going to treat us as tools of efficiency, not as full human beings, even if they're Christian employers, that's probably going to be the case. And so um, a couple of things I would say, one is we need to learn the vocabulary and the, the discernment abilities to be able to see these things and name them. Because when we can see and name things, uh, then we have some agency. When we can't see and name them, then they just affect us, right? So when we, when we can't recognize how we're being treated as less than fully human, then it just depresses us. It just weighs on us. So uh, that's the first step, having that agency, having the ability to respond. Um, the second thing is that 
um, we need grace and patience because when someone treats you as not fully human, when somebody treats you as if you belong to yourself and treats you with that expectation, they've probably not heard the alternative themselves. And frankly, it's probably beating them up too, right? Um, so have grace for them um, and, and look for opportunities to help them see that they don't have to think this way, that they do belong to someone else because uh, that's, that's what they need. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think, and then the third thing would be look for spaces in your sphere of influence where you can, you can act differently where you have some agency, where you can not only see and name things, but you can actually treat other people um, as made in the image of God and as belonging to God. Um, And, you know, I'm not saying that by modeling this, you're going to start a new fad that's going to sweep the nation and fix all our problems. But that doesn't matter. Again, that doesn't matter. You have an opportunity to act differently. So so you, you need to do it. There's one other thing I want to ask you, but before that, I always just love giving people just the opportunity of, is there anything that we haven't talked about that is just on top of mind that you're like, hey, I want to make sure that I say this? I don't think so. No, you've asked some good no, questions. I'm, that's good. I'm good. I just love, uh, I just love uh, giving people the opportunity for that. Um, the last thing, and you've, you've touched on it a little bit, but it's just such a powerful quote that I want to read it and then um, would just love... Uh, you're, you're taking uh, for you to expound on it is just the idea of, you know, and you say in the book, God did not call you to be successful. He called you to be faithful. And it's just a quote that I think is, um, you know, I've heard that quote before, but just in the context of your book, it just hit me in a, in a completely in a new way. And I would just love your thoughts as we uh, close out our conversation on that. Are you saying I plagiarize that? Did I get that from somebody? I don't even I, remember. I don't. I don't know. Uh, it doesn't I, sound original. No, I, th- I. I don't think the quote exactly, but okay. I, I've heard the idea before. Okay. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I might. Yeah. That's the thing with ideas. <laughs> like when you're writing, you're like, oh yeah. I have this thought. Is this my thought? I have no idea. I'm just gonna write this, and if I take it from somebody yeah. else, please forgive me. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. So it's not. Um, it's not original, but I do. Th- that's one of the big difference makers that helps us take care of those responsibilities of self-belonging and throw them off, right? Because when when we think about our lives having to be successful, including spiritual success, or like, because that's often what it looks like, uh, or, um, you know, uh, uh, financial success, spiritual education, uh, uh, success in activism, right? Uh, social justice success, like things that are that are good that will uh, uh but but when we when we see those as the things that that uh, that define us that are our that's our telos that's our obligation that's what we have to do um to make our lives justified and worthwhile it does it, it eats us up it it just over it overwhelms us and um we get I think we get perverse incentives as they talk about in economics where where we're trying to do something good, but all of a sudden in trying to do something good, we end up competing with others because success, we typically just measure it against other people. So now my ministry success is dependent upon making sure that guy over there and his ministry doesn't get in my way, right? And so now I have this perverse incentive to make sure he's not successful. Um, Whereas when we think about our task is just being faithful. God has given you good work to do right wherever you are right now today. There's good work for you to do. And in doing that good work, you're honoring and glorifying God. And that's it. And then there's a tremendous burden lifted off of your shoulders. That, that doesn't mean you don't work for excellence. It doesn't mean you don't try difficult things. Um, but it does mean that your, your way of understanding the purpose behind those has shifted. Your identity isn't dependent upon that success. The, the uh, um, salvation of the world is not dependent upon your success. Um, God is the one in charge. And that actually gives you the freedom to work with excellence and beauty and joy. Um, anxiety-free. That doesn't mean that you're going to be anxiety-free in my experience. I mean, because uh, because everyone is still going to be telling you you have to be successful. But it's still true. It's still true. Well, Alan, I know that people are going to want to pick up 
the book and continue to learn from you? Where's the best place for people to go to do all of those things? Uh, OAllenNoble.com is uh, my website. I've got an, a website on the internet. Uh, you can also follow me on the Alan Noble uh, on Twitter um, if one is you know, inclined to do such a thing. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast and thanks for just doing the work and for sharing it with us today. Thank you. I think coming out of that conversation with Alan and not only coming out of the conversation, but after reading the book, this, this book in my mind is such a, it's such a paradigm shifter for me. And there's so much stuff that we could, that I could talk about that stood out to me. Um, I feel like we covered a lot of that in, in the actual conversation too. And there's just so much stuff. Um, but one thing that I did want to, to talk about or mention that I, uh, I forgot to ask him about in the book. And I just want to read a couple of uh, paragraphs that really stood out to me. A couple of quotes from it is he talks about uh, not doing everything that you can, which again, just as the whole book and the whole concept is something that is, is not celebrated or is not even really talked about as it concerns uh, the, the Western society of which we live in. So I would love to read just a couple of these quotes that really stood out to me. Where our society continually says, yes, you may, for a price, we must learn when to say, no, we may not, not for any price. As any child knows, self-restraint is difficult to even imagine when everyone else is giving in, but that is precisely the kind of witness we need to be. And then, not doing all that we can do when it isn't motivated by expressive individualism or self-righteousness forcefully asserts that the most significant limit on our actions is not material, what is available to me, legal, what will the state allow me to do, or natural, what can I physically do, but divine, what ought I do in light of my belonging to Christ. In a society that despises limits, we must be willing to accept limits for ourselves and encourage them for others. And I think for me, the word or the idea that just kept coming back to me in in all of this is freedom. Is that there is a ton of freedom found in all of this. I think the freedom comes from we're not responsible for everything. But we are called to be faithful to, to the people and to the things that matter most to us. And the, and the great thing is, is that there, there is just a lot of freedom in that. And God gives us the freedom to choose that, to choose the people who, who we care about and to choose uh, the things that we, to the, to the careers, or to the, you know, if you want to use the word callings, that we give our lives to. In that, and so it it's both an incredibly challenging and an incredibly encouraging book as well. And so, if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to pick up the book. You know, you are not your own, belonging to God, and in an inhuman world, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast player you use. And I would really appreciate if you left a rating and write and wrote a review of the podcast. That would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word and spread the conversation on this. If you have a subject or someone that you would love us to talk with on the podcast, reach out to me at learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you as well. I do want to say a quick thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you, Garrett Oler, for creating or not creating, for editing the podcast and thank you to Alan for being on the con being on the podcast and for just doing the work and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. I think that's all that I have for you today. So my name is Caleb Mason and until next time, keep learning and keep growing. <laughs>